I want to look at Christmas through Isaiah. Christmas according to Isaiah is the name of the message. And we're going to be in chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. Please turn there if you could. Christmas according to Isaiah. I'll give you probably around seven points. There'll be a few sub points in there. Um, and there will be a mess of sermon slides. Pray for Robin. <laughs> she'll do it. She'll, she'll, she'll kill it. She'll do a good job. So, And we just did that as a visual aid to you. So let's pray as we get started here. Father, thank you for sending your son into a literal battlefield, a spiritual battlefield. And Lord, you've sent him in as the victorious king, and he won the victory through his perfect life, atoning death, victorious resurrection, his throne, um, uh, taking the throne through the ascension, um, he has won the victory for us. If we are in him, we are victors. And so thank you for sending our king into the world to save us, to make us his people. We uh, celebrate Christmas Day as a commemoration of the moment that you sent him in to the world to do what he did. And that's what Christmas is about. It's not about Santa and these other things. I, I suppose those things are okay as long as they don't distract, but that's really not what Christmas is about. And so just teach us Christmas according to Isaiah through the lens of Isaiah through the scripture called Isaiah. We want to learn more about Jesus and his birth and his personhood and his work. And Isaiah had plenty to say about this long before Jesus was ever born. So just teach us from the scripture this morning. Thank you for all who are here. And uh, there could be some that just didn't want to come down to church because they're busy with presents and all those things. Well, not this group. This group's either got those things done or is making their poor kids wait till later. Uh, but for the most part, they're here, and I pray that you bless them richly, and may you be blessed through this message and all that we do. We love you, and pray in Christ's name, amen. I'm going to go ahead and read our text, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Here's what it says. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And lastly, it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's our text for this morning. I want to give you a little background, a little context. Uh, it's important to have some context and background that helps us understand what has been written, why it's been written, and what its meaning is. So just a little bit of context. The prophet Isaiah is one of the major prophets. His book is massive. How, how many of you in here have actually read the book of Isaiah? It's pretty, it's pretty astounding, and it's pretty big. Um, it's doctrinal, it's historical, it's prophetic, it's got everything. And, and this guy, this prophet Isaiah, lived about 700 years before the birth of Christ, so around the 7th century B.C. And at that time, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. You had the north and the south. Uh, the United Kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon was split in two by a civil war after Solomon's death. 
Isaiah lived and worked in the southern kingdom and dwelt in the city of Jerusalem. That's a city that we're well, uh, well familiar with. And he himself was from an influential family. He was very well educated. His name actually means, the trans, translation of, of Isaiah in Hebrew means God of salvation. So every time he heard his name, he was reminded of the God of salvation. And he did serve as a preacher for the royal family uh, throughout the reigns of a great many kings like Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. There's some kings that might be a little bit familiar to us. Isaiah made a lot of prophecies concerning what would happen to Judah, uh, the southern kingdom. Within a century's time, history verifies that all of his prophecies essentially came true. One such prophecy was given as the entire region was going through a very severe crisis. Isaiah had predicted that the northern kingdom would be destroyed and taken into captivity. And this took place shortly after as Assyria came and conquered the northern kingdom and scattered all the people in roughly 721 B.C. In addition to, to the prophecy about this region's terrible defeat, he also prophesied about how a Messiah would be raised up through that same kingdom, through, that, through Judah essentially. And this Messiah would save his people and establish a permanent or everlasting kingdom. So at the same time that all this stuff is happening, he's, he's prophesying that it's going to happen. And he's prophesying that something else is going to happen later on that's really, really good for these people. So he essentially in his prophecies gives them bad news and then gives them good news. And we see this particular prophecy about this Messiah who would come, who would establish this everlasting kingdom. We see it, we see it dotted throughout Isaiah, but we see the greatest concentration of this prophecy right here in chapter 9, verses 6 to 7. And that's what we're going to take a look at. Know this, that when, when the Israelites were really experiencing a lot of trouble, a lot of tribulation, most of it was self-induced through sin and idolatry. But for the most part, when they were at their all-time lows, what they would do is they would slide over to this text. They'd unroll a scroll and they would look at this particular prophecy and it would flood them with joy and hope for a future in those things. And so that's how meaningful this prophecy was to the ancient Jews, and it's quite meaningful to current-day Jews who are still hoping for these things to come to pass. So that's the text we're looking at. I've broken it up into a bunch of points, and the first point that I want to look at is, number one, the birth of Messiah is foretold. That's the first thing that Isaiah talks about in this amazing messianic prophecy. He projects or prophesies that a Messiah is going to be born. We see this in verse 6a, and he says it just as, just as we're familiar with it. When we think of Christmas time, we think of this passage. Here's his prophecy of the, of the Messiah foretold, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. There it is. Isaiah tells us that Messiah will be born through these people, through this group of people, through this uh, body of people at some point, and he says that Messiah will be a son. We see the gender there. We see the pronoun. This is going to be, he is going to be born of Judah, of this group later on, and he is going to be, the Messiah is going to be a son. Now, one of the things that I've always thought about is that in, in God's plan, what he could have easily done is instead of, uh, 
sending, instead of fulfilling this prophecy by sending Jesus or Christ as a little baby, theoretically, and right, so because a baby's weak, a baby's nothing, of no consequence, no power, anything. That's how he comes into the world. But I'm thinking theoretically, he could have just sent a phone grown man. And a lot of people speculate as to this. Why did he have to come as a baby and all that? He could have just sent Messiah into the world as a fully grown man. Like, like Messiah could have taken on the fullness of adulthood, come as a grown man, similar to how Adam was created. Adam wasn't created through the regular conception process and all that. He was created as a fully grown man. And God could have done the exact same thing with Jesus, because that's essentially who we're talking about. But that's not the way that, that God did it. So Messiah would be born would be a, 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 you know, a, a newborn and an infant and a toddler and an adolescent and, heaven forbid, a teenager, but he was a good teenager. All of that, he would go through the regular process that, that we all do. And the reason for this is so that, I believe, Messiah could more fully identify with humanity, right? You, you go through the same growth process and all that as a regular human being, as a person, it's it, not that Christ, I mean, Christ is infinitely wise on in these things, but in some sense, it helps him to be able to identify with us and most certainly and more importantly for us to be able to identify with him, right? He just comes as a conqueror and as a fully grown man, that might not relate to us as well as him going through the birth process and everything else. He, in order to fully identify with humanity and I, th I would say equally important to that, to display in his own life the servant nature of God, because that's what he did. He would need to be of no reputation in the form of a bondservant and enter into the world in the likeness of men, Philippians 2.7. So theoretically, God could have sent a fully grown man as Messiah, but he doesn't. He sends him as a babe. He was born, this Messiah would be born of a woman just like everyone else. But he would not be born of just any woman, but of a woman of God's special choosing, a highly favored virgin. Isaiah 7, 14, verse A, uh, a speaks to this, and of course, Luke 1, speaks to this. Now, I want you to notice what it says in the text, a great many things, but one thing in particular, it says, to us a son is given. He would be given not by his mother, like maybe with Hannah giving Samuel over to the service of the Lord, 1 Samuel 1.22. He would be given by God. He will be God's son. Okay, so he will be given, meaning God will give him. Not Mary giving him, but God himself. He would be God's son given by God the Father. He would be God incarnate. That is God in the flesh. He would be God with us, and we call that, that name is called Emmanuel. We read that in Isaiah 7, 14b. He would be, in a sense, God's giving, God giving him as a special gift for God's people. That's the way that we want to look at that. He's given. And we have to ask the question and answer it, to whom will he be given? Isaiah says, to us. He would be given to us. He was referring to Judah and more specifically Israel as a whole. The son 
will be given to Israel just as the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises were all given to Israel, Romans 9, 4. Isaiah is prophesying that, that God is going to give us a Messiah and he's going, to be, he's going to be a baby and grow up to be a man. He's going to be a son, but he's given to us. So there's a specificity here in a sense. But notice how Isaiah did not say he would be given for us or for us a son is given. It says two, but not four. You see, the Messiah, the messianic son, will be given to Israel, but not for Israel alone. Two, but not for alone. He will be for all people, meaning every tribe, every tongue, every generation, Revelation 7, 9. He will be a global Messiah. God will send this Messiah into the world to save and redeem and deliver a great many people of every tribe, tongue, and generation. He will literally save every type of person. And not only that, not only will he save and redeem every type of person, but he will redeem the whole creation which groans because of the futility Adam and sinful humanity are subjecting it to. Romans 8, 20 to 22. Basically, we, Adam, beginning with Adam, thrust this whole creation into sin. And now, we have subjected it to this sinful, wicked futility. And all of creation groans to be redeemed by this same Messiah. So he's a global Messiah who will come to save people across the globe and to redeem creation or the globe itself. This is all packed into this. Obviously, we are talking about Jesus because he alone fits Isaiah's prophecy or description. He is the messianic child. He is the messianic son given by God. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave, right, his only begotten son. He is the one who was born of a virgin, uh, Luke 1, 27. He, was the, he is the one who was given to Israel for all peoples. It's plain. The suffering servant, the Christ, that's Messiah, that's the Greek word for Messiah. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's the global redemption. Isaiah 53, Matthew 16, 16, John 1, 29. He's the one who comes into the world to save people from every tribe and tongue. He is the Redeemer who redeems all creation. Revelation 21, 1 to 5, where it talks about a new heavens and new earth. That is the redemption of this whole creation. So he is, this, he is the child who is to be born to these Jews. He is the son to be given by God for these purposes. That's the first thing that Isaiah talks about. Right now, any ancient Jew who's reading this, who's suffering tribulation in that kingdom, is saying, praise the Lord. This is something that I can't wait to happen. Can you make it happen tomorrow, right after I get out of Walmart? Right? <laughs> Number two, second point, his birth, that's Messiah's birth, would signal the end of the reign of Satan on earth. This is something that Isaiah prophesies right here, and this is very important. We see this in 6b, he said, and he says it like this, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. The term government means kingdom, and the word shoulder means authority. So you're talking about a kingdom, and you're talking about authority. 
Now, since the fall of Adam, Satan has kept men in bondage through their ignorance and fear of death, Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. He keeps people as prisoners in darkness because their works are evil, John 3, 19. But the birth of Messiah, this child who would be born, this son who would be given, this messianic kid, grow up into a man, and it ultimately here signifies this birth and him coming into the world signifies really the beginning of a new kingdom. The establishment of a new authority, the creation of a new people, and the ultimate destruction of Satan's power and rule as the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. It's all packed into this Isaiah prophecy. You're an ancient Jew. You know this is what's going to happen. This is what you're thinking. I just want you to think of, of Jesus being this Messiah who came, not just to come, but who came and how he fulfilled some of these things, these prophecies. You think of Colossians 2.15. It speaks of Jesus triumphing over and disarming the spiritual rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame through his perfect atonement and wrath-satisfying death on the cross. That right there, that text... Colossians 2.15 is the end of Satan through this Messiah. That is his destruction. That is the end of his reign and his kingdom. This literally fulfills Isaiah's prophecy of Messiah destroying the reign of Satan on earth. And it fulfills Moses' prophecy of the seed of Eve crushing the head of the serpent, the proto-evangelium in Genesis 3.15. Over in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus declares, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That means that, that the, the authority that Satan had to kind of rule over this world under the sovereignty of God and to do his thing was taken away from him and given to the Son. The Son snatched it up as he conquered this devil. And this is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of the government resting on Messiah's shoulders. And today, the good news is, is that Satan is bound, not entirely, but bound in a sense and in a way. How so? So that he cannot deceive the nations. How? By prohibiting the spread of the gospel. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. In other words... As a conquered foe, and not entirely yet because there will come the final thrust of Christ's judgment on him when he's cast in the lake of fire, but for now, his ultimate power and ultimate deceptions have been placated or put on the side or he's bound and cannot stop the gospel from going forward. That's what it means when, you, when it talks about him being able to deceive the nations. At one point, he could deceive the nations to the point that truth could not even go into a nation. And because of the victory of this Messiah, the gospel can go forth, and essentially nothing can stop it from going to precisely whomever God aims it at. Satan used to get in the way of that. Can't do it now. At the second Christmas... Right? What do you mean? We've had a lot of Christmases. I'm talking about the second advent when Christ comes again. He will come not as a baby and humble servant, but as a conquering king. And he will cast Satan into the lake of fire to suffer 
everlasting torment, Revelation 20.10. There is Satan's final end and final demise. But you need to understand that if you are a believer in Christ, he has no power and authority over you. None. You belong to the king, and the king has smashed him and crushed his head. Know this. So, number three, third point. Speaking of Messiah, his birth will bring the fullest revelation of God in history. The most complete revelation of God, we might say. We see this in verse 6c. Now, in the Old Testament, your name stood for who you were. It was a mark of individuality. I don't know if we do that anymore. We've probably gotten away from that. We just want movies that we hear in Hollywood. You know, we want last names or first names that we hear in Hollywood movies now. I think that's crazy. Remember when everyone was naming their daughter Bella? Gee, I wonder what movie they got that from. Twilight? But in the Old Testament, your name had significance. You weren't just given a name. I mean, think of Isaiah, God of Salvation. Names had a lot of meaning. There was a lot packed into it. And what, I, what Isaiah does here in this next verse here, this next portion of the verse, is he confers four names on this Messiah to be born, and each one is used to refer to divinity, the divinity of this Messiah, the fact that he would be God, and it's elsewhere used to refer to divinity, like in Isaiah 28, verse 29. Here they are. This would be like 3A, I suppose, and I think it's already on the screen. A, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. This means the Messiah's counsel or teaching will be so incredibly wonderful, so good, so pure, so lofty, so clean, so precise, that it could only be divine. It could only be directly from God. In other words, it would be unlike anything the world had ever seen, anything the world had ever heard before, far above the counsel and teachings of mere men, religious leaders, whatever. Strangely enough, roughly 700 years later, maybe a little bit more than that, during the ministry of Jesus, a most unlikely group of guys was able to recognize this divine messianic quality in Jesus Christ. So if you look at Isaiah's prophecy, you fast forward 700 years, you've got Jesus who's going around teaching and preaching. We know uh, that's who Isaiah is pointing to. But you had some people that were able to recognize this in his teaching. And there was a group of guys that you would have never thought would have figured this out. They were temple guards. They were cops. They were police. I'm not saying police are bad. I'm just saying it's weird that the religious leaders couldn't figure this out, but the cops who protected the religious leaders had no problem picking it out. While these temple police were being literally excoriated, just shredded, ripped to pieces by the chief priests and Pharisees for not arresting Jesus on a particular occasion, they had been instructed, you need to arrest him because his teaching, we need to stop him. Look, at he's getting a following and the things he's saying. And, and this little police force just did not do their job. They let Jesus go. And when they were being excoriated and shredded and put under the lamp and, and investigated for not doing it, they described to the religious leaders why they let Jesus go. And this is what they said, John 7, 46. No one ever spoke like this man. We've never heard anything like this wonderful counselor. Around the same time, 
Jesus had been counseling and, and teaching divine truth to various crowds. He had big crowds at times, small crowds at times, just a few guys at times. Do you know how the crowds responded to his teachings? In quote-unquote astonishment, they declared, he teaches with real authority, unlike our scribes. Matthew 7, 28 and 29. The scribes were the, the top professors, the top theological scholars in Israel. It was their job to interpret the word and to interpret the oral law and then to pass that information to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were another religious group who would go out and teach people how to live. These were the R.C. Sproles of their day. They were the highest theologians. And what we are reading here in Matthew and really what we're seeing prophesied in Isaiah 9 is that Jesus blew their doors off with his teaching. He taught with such authenticity and such authority and such precision that it would, it would leave his audiences and his crowd spellbound, awestruck, blown away. Cops and regular crowds. Amazing. The New Testament testifies to the unprecedented counsel and teaching of Jesus in other places as well. We see it in, uh, in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. The author says, Long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Right there, the author of Hebrews puts Jesus, the Son of God, the one who was sent, the Messiah, Son, the Christ, in a league of his own in terms of teaching. God had instructed his people in a, in, in a great many ways through prophets and, and, and others, but in these last days, the author of Hebrews says he has spoken to us through his Son, the highest and greatest counselor of all, the wonderful counselor. Then, of course, in 1 John 5.20, it says... And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. John was a huge fan of the deity of Christ and was blown away by Christ's teachings and the way that he preached the word, unlike anything anyone had ever heard. Bottom line, the messianic, wonderful counselor that Isaiah predicted and the Jews in his day were joyfully anticipated, anticipating to come is undoubtedly Jesus. We even call him the wonderful counselor. We sing about him in some of our Christmas carols as the wonderful counselor. He's it. He's the one. And then in 3b or b, Isaiah says, mighty God. This means Messiah, this Messiah, this child to be born, this son to be given, this Messiah to come into the world. He will display divine power or the might of God. And you just stop and think about the things that Jesus did. You know anything about the Gospels, anything about the Bible, anything about Jesus you know he did a lot of supernatural stuff. He displayed divine power through healings, through feedings, one time 5,000, one time, one time 4,000, and there was even more than that because that's just the men. 
He displayed divine power through exorcism, casting demons out of people. He casted, I don't know how many, a legion of demons out of one dude. They went into a herd of pigs and then went off the side of a mountain into the sea. He displayed divine power by raising the dead. Think of Lazarus. He displayed divine power by walking on water, in which later Peter said, I can do this too, and then right down to the bottom. He displayed divine power by calming the storm. Who calms a storm? Who stops a raging storm? I tell you, I tried to a couple weeks ago because I knew our building would get flooded. Remember when it was raining? It kept raining. Because I don't have divine power like this. He stopped storms. And most importantly, he displayed divine power through bearing the dreadful, devastating wrath of God towards sin while on the cross and by raising himself from the dead on the third day. He himself said that he lays down his life and he'll take it up again. Do you remember what Nicodemus said during, or said to Jesus during that late night meeting, Nick at night, right? He said, Rabbi, that means teacher, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him, John 3, 2. Now, Nicodemus was very, very close to the mark here. He thinks that maybe he was just sent from God and maybe anointed by God. I don't think he understood the deity of Christ yet. But he's close to the truth here. What he's saying is true, but it's more than that. Jesus is God. He's not just anointed with divine power. He is God, and that's why he has the might of God. That's why he has the ability to do these things. But th this guy, this cat, Nicodemus, was a Pharisee. He was on the other team. And he's saying that me and other Pharisees recognize that because of your ability to perform the mighty acts of God, that you obviously have something to do with God. That's what he's been saying. At the very end of his gospel, John makes an incredible statement about the divine power and might of Jesus Christ. He says there are many other things that Jesus did. He's referring to miracles and all these supernatural things. There are many other things Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. John 21, 25. John just makes this. It's a hyperbolous statement, but he's saying, we saw, look, I have written down what the Holy Spirit has instructed me to write down, and I've showed you a lot of supernatural miracles and the might and the divine power of Christ. But let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, whoever reads this book of mine, he did so much more, there's not even enough books to record them. What are we learning here? The messianic, mighty God, Messiah, that Isaiah predicted the Jews were joyfully anticipating. It's undoubtedly Jesus. He is this mighty God because he is God and he has the might of God, the divine power of God. And he displayed it a lot. You know, and, and, and if you lived in that day and, and Jesus rolled through your town and, and you, you listened to this unprecedented, wonderful counsel, and you saw this, this mighty God in the form of man performing these miracles and healing people and doing these sorts of things. It would have been a mind-blowing thing to see. And yet, there were still people who watched it and heard it and watched it and walked away saying, no way. No way. It's not him. <laughs> Most of them were Jewish. How sad. 3C, or number, or letter C, he will not only be called Mighty God and Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father. This is an interesting one. This means the Messiah 
is co-eternal and co-equal with God, the everlasting Father. In other words, they share the same divine substance and attributes. Since the Messiah is co-equal and co-eternal with God, that means that he resides with God the Father in heaven, or at least did then. And of course he does now, but he did then. But we know that he must come down, right? Because this child is going to be born and the son is going to be given. He's got to come down. So he already pre-exists for all eternity. He's with the Father, but he has to come down to actually take on the form of man as our federal, our new federal head and as our redeemer. And he has to come down and do the work of Messiah on behalf of sinners. And this is literally what we celebrate at Christmas time. Right? We, we celebrate not just the birth of Jesus, but God condescending and stepping out of glory and away from the throne to come down here and humble himself and to condescend and to become one of us, a worm like one of us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. Scripture is replete with passages describing the co-eternality of Christ, the fact that that he shares with the Father or is equal to the Father in the fact that he is eternal and he's always existed, always lived, never has a beginning, never has an end. He wasn't created. He wasn't born in heaven and then reborn on earth. He has always been, and Scripture talks about this co-eternality all the time, and it's important that we tie it to other Scripture because that's what Isaiah is teaching. John 1, 3 Speaking of Christ, all things were made by him, and without him was nothing, uh, um, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, Christ played a, a significant role in the creation of everything that has ever been created. That work required his existence in eternity past, well before creation began. That's what John 1, 3 means. It means that Christ, you remember, this is what John's doing is playing off Genesis 1. He's paralleling off of it. He's telling us that at the creation, in Genesis 1, Christ was there and he was the creating arm of the Father. He's always been, is what he's saying. Colossians chapter 1, 16 to 17 says, very similar, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So here Paul is telling us in this text the same thing is what, is what John said and what Moses said in, in, in Genesis 1 and John in chapter 1 of John. He's saying basically this same thing, and he adds this detail that not only has Christ created all these things through him and for him and to him, but he keeps them held together. You get the idea of, uh, we, we, we've got the might of God being displayed here in Christ who is divinely through divine power keeping all things moving. This universe isn't operating on its own, friends. Christ makes it operate. Christ sustains it. Revelation 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, He, speaking of Christ, is, was, and is to come. Meaning He's always existed. He was with them, John says and he will come back. That's the eternality of Christ when you start talking about how he always has been and then was and is to come. Revelation 22, 13, uh, speaking of Christ, he is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He has no beginning, no end. He's always been. This is the co-eternality 
of this Messiah that would come. And we know that it's only in Christ because he's the only one we could ever compare any of this to. Scripture is also replete with passages describing the co-equality of Christ, not just the co-eternality, but the co-equality of Christ. These texts and, and quotes are taken directly from Jesus' own mouth. John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven. Now he's talking about before his birth. I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. Speaking of the Father, the everlasting Father. That's why I came down. He sent me down here. I was with him beforehand because I am like the everlasting Father, co-eternal. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. This doesn't mean that they're, this means that they're precisely the same in their substance. They are uniquely different from each other, but they are, in a sense, one because they're, they're both eternal both omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, they're, they're all of that. They're both divine, is what he's saying. Uh, let's see. John 14, 9. If you have seen the Son, you have seen the Father. Those who looked on Jesus saw the exact imprint of the Father. You look at Jesus, you see God. You look at the Father, you see God. They're the same in that regard. And then John 20, verse 21, the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He's speaking to his disciples. The Father sent me to come down here and do ministry. I'm sending you guys out to do ministry. That's the co-equality, the co-eternality, the idea that Christ and the everlasting Father are the same in substance, same in attributes. Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah will be that. Jesus came as it, as that person. The messianic everlasting father Isaiah predicted and the Jews were joyfully anticipating it is undoubtedly Jesus. It has to be. Uh, let's see, 3D, Prince of Peace. Oh, that's the last one, my bad. Prince of Peace, D, I always screw up on these because, you know, I don't do points, and when I do them, I barely execute on them because I don't do them. But this is the last descriptor or title or name that Isaiah gives him here in this particular prophecy, Prince of Peace. This might be the most familiar to us, right? When Christmas time comes around, we think of this. It means that the Messiah will bring peace like a prince who delivers peaceful terms to a former adversary, like when one nation conquered another nation, they would usually send in their princes to go in and negotiate peace and these sorts of things. And that's what this carries. That's what it denotes. As the Prince of Peace, Messiah will come to establish peace between God and God's adversaries, sinners. He will not come to bring peace on earth like some think and some say during Christmas time. And, and I, I want to just emphasize that point because there's a great many people, even some Christians, who think that that's why he came, to bring peace on earth. Well, if that's why he came, then I think he failed, right? Because that's not something we even have in my neighborhood. <laughs> he did not come to bring peace on earth. He came to bring a sword. He came to divide. How so? 
Father against daughter, son against dad, brother against sister. How so? Well, when he saves one person, they develop an entirely different worldview and pursue Christ. And that ticks off the rest of the household. And now you have warring factions within a household because you have one who's living for God and others who are living for the world. And those two things do not go together. That's what Christ meant when he said, I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to save my people, and when I save them, they're going to be so vastly different from others, others are going to get ticked off. I don't want you in my house anymore. I'm tired of this Jesus stuff. This is what he meant. It's what he meant. So, peace on earth is not his initial goal. It is his initial goal at his first pass, the first Christmas, was to bring peace between sinners and God, which is a higher, more important peace. We call Jesus the Prince of Peace because he fits this title of Prince of Peace. He condescended and came to live a perfect life, to die an atoning death, to be buried, and to be raised from the dead on the third day. Why? To establish peace between God and those who believe. They have peace with God. If you're trusting in Christ, you have peace with God. Before that, you were at war with God. It may not have seemed like it, but you were. We now have peace with God through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. Colossians 1.20 says it exactly like that. The only way to have peace with God is through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. Those who trust in Him have peace with God because they are what? Among those with whom the Father is pleased. Luke 2.14. That's Christmas narrative there. They have peace with God in Christ. In other words, they never have to worry about their relationship with God again. They're no longer at war with God. The arms and weaponry of them that they were using against God before as, as spiritually dead sinners, they've been laid down, beaten into plowshares, whatever. They're gone. They're done. There's no more warfare. There's no more strife between them and God. They have peace in Christ. Therefore, they are at peace with God and the work of Christ is permanent, therefore the peace we have with God is permanent. If the work of Christ was not permanent, we'd have peace with God on Tuesday, and by Wednesday I'd blow that to pieces and I'd already be at war with Him again. But the work of Christ is as He said on the cross, finished. We have peace with God because we are in Christ, but believe it, we will still have tribulation in this world, John 16, But Jesus says in that same text, take heart, I have overcome the world. The Prince of Peace also supplies his people with the kind of peace that goes beyond understanding. It transcends understanding. In the midst of this tribulation and all tribulation, peace that quells anxiousness and guards our hearts when life is hard. Philippians 4, 6, the Prince of Peace brings peace between us and God and gives us peace in our worst times. How many of you who are in Christ have experienced that peace when peace should not have made any sense? You got a report and you were at peace when you know others would have been running in circles. And this is why when we lose our loved ones. We don't act like the world because we have this transcending peace that calms us in the midst of this. We do not mourn like those in the world. We mourn like those who are in Christ. We still mourn. We still grieve. 
but we have this transcending peace, so we can keep it together. The messianic prince of peace Isaiah predicted and the Jews were joyfully anticipating is undoubtedly Jesus. There's no doubt about it. Let's move to our fourth point. Number four, somebody doesn't have peace. <laughs> Give her Jesus. It happens. Number four, his kingdom and peace will never end. This is what Isaiah says at the beginning of verse 7a. He says, of the increase of his government, speaking of Messiah, and of peace, there will be no end. Mm. Unlike Satan's government and the governments of this world, which are brought to an end, Revelation 2.27, the government or kingdom of Messiah is everlasting. It will increase numerically until the full number of the elect are brought in through the gospel when all Israel is once and for all saved, Romans 11.26. And it will, and it with its peace will have no end. This kingdom will have peace. This kingdom will essentially have no end. And it will have peace that has no end. That's what Isaiah is prophesying. And we see this in Daniel 7.14. We see it in Luke 1.33 and Romans 14.7. Revelation 11:15. Why do we see it in the New Testament? Because it's all being tied to Christ and his kingdom and his peace. That's a short point. Let's go to number five. It's not fair. You got to give them equal time. Not if you want to get out of here for lunch. <laughs> number five, this Messiah, Isaiah says, will sit on the throne of David. Verse 7b, he says it. Just, just like I did on the throne of David and over his kingdom. This is an essential aspect of Messiah's rule. He will be a descendant of David, talk, talking about King David, Israel's greatest human king. He will be seated on David's throne and he will rule over the Davidic kingdom. This was promised to Israel early on. We see it in Psalm 89 verse 4, Jeremiah 22:17 Luke and we see uh, we see it also a little bit later on in the fulfillment in Luke chapter 1 32 to 33. You know, King David had his faults, but he was a fairly decent king. He was easily the greatest earthly king they'd ever had. Saul who came before him was a disaster on feet. But David was pretty solid. I mean, he had he had stuff, you know, he was a man. He, the best of men are at best men. He did a pretty good job. In fact, that, that's, that's, that's what the Israelites, the Jews today are longing for is, is another Davidic king. They know the Messiah is going to be a Davidic king. But I tell you what, if they could get David back right now, they'd take him in a heartbeat. Because he was a pretty decent king. Yet the Messiah that's being prophesied here, however, he won't have any faults like David. And he will be Israel's greatest king ever. He will be seated on David's throne, which uh, David's throne foreshadowed the Messiah's own throne. So when you think of the Davidic throne, think of the Messianic throne or the throne of Messiah, because that's what that pictures. And he will rule over David's kingdom, the Davidic kingdom, which foreshadowed Messiah's kingdom. You know, a lot of times in the Old Testament, you see a particular king who was pretty decent and a, and a good kingdom. Those are just foreshadows of what's to come. They have a dual meaning. They have a, a meaning right in that moment. It's literally king and is a decent king and a literal kingdom, but it has a prophetic ending to it. And that's what, the, that's what David and this kingdom represent. 
The Messiah, Jesus Christ, is now seated on this throne and he is ruling over this kingdom. How is this possible? Isn't the Davidic throne and kingdom, wouldn't they be centrally located in Jerusalem and wouldn't they be very active and present today? Yes and no. Uh, David's throne was in Jerusalem, but not in the fullest sense. That was only a foreshadow, as I said. The immutable, unchanging, everlasting Davidic throne is in heaven at the right hand of God, where Christ is now seated in glory. Mark 16, 19, Ephesians 1, 20, Colossians 3, 1, Hebrews 10, 12. I could keep going. David's throne in Jerusalem pointed to Christ's throne in heaven and future throne on earth. You want to know what the deeper meaning of David as king and David's throne and David's kingdom is? It's the Messiah. It's Christ and his throne and his kingship and his kingdom. That's everything that David points to in that regard. Now, the Davidic kingdom of David's day was limited in size, and it had a mess of problems, tons of issues, kind of like Modesto with our city council. Lord have mercy. The other day, we went to a show and watched a guy sing. We went and saw Tony Mathis. And uh, chances are, remember that guy? It was great, great show. And uh, there was a comedian that came out during an intermission because, I mean, the guy's like 87. He sings two songs. He's like, it's time for a Geritol. I mean, he has to get out of there. And he came off the stage, and he, he, Bruce is in better shape than this guy, but Bruce is also not as old as him. But in any case, he came out. He still had the singing chops. And we had a guy that I didn't even know this was going to happen. There was a comedian that came up for like, I don't know, a half hour or so. And he was pretty clean. He didn't get all dirty because, I mean, everyone in there was like older, and they would have like pitchforked him. And, and I was happy about that. I was like, for the one time in my life, I was super, super happy to be surrounded by geriatric people. And um, I'm, I'm kidding. So um, anyways, this guy gets up and he says, you know what? I came to Modesto and I saw something I've never seen before. I saw a live nativity scene. And he said, as I got closer, I realized it was a homeless encampment. You're saying, well, how does that have to do with our city council? But there you go. <laughs> right? So David's kingdom had its problems. Our little kingdom here has its issues, but that's besides the point. But in any case, it had some issues and it had some troubles. It had constant enemies. It had betrayals. You remember when Absalom tried to take his throne? I mean, he did take it for a moment. David went into hiding. What's that all about? You love your kid enough to give up your kingdom? Yeah, I guess that's probably smart, but he didn't love you. Uh, it had divisions. It had idolatry. It had probably fake nativity scenes with transient camps. I don't know. It had a lot of issues, but still foreshadowed Messiah's kingdom. Not in its troubles, but by, I would say, its early devotion to God's law and by its political stability and by its power and, and by its peace. Those are the, the positive things in that kingdom that reflect that kingdom to come of Messiah. The Davidic messianic kingdom that, that Jesus you know, came into the world to establish and rule over, it's both physical and spiritual. It is physical in that it is all creation. Why? Because Jesus is king of king, kings and lord of lords over everything. Ephesians 1, 21 to 22. So when you think of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ or the messianic kingdom or the true Davidic kingdom, it literally is all creation in a sense because Jesus is king over every 
inch, every centimeter, every millimeter. It's all his. He cries out, I don't remember who said it, all is mine. I don't remember who said that, but that was a great quote. So it's physical in that regard, and we talked about this last Sunday in Corinthians, but it is also spiritual in that it is in believers. Jesus is the king who rules over the hearts of his people. And Ephesians 3.17 speaks of this, that he rules over the hearts of his people through faith in a sense. So Isaiah's prophecy about Messiah seated on David's throne, it is partially fulfilled by Jesus Christ in this regard. When the Lord returns, he will sit on a physical throne and rule over an entirely visible kingdom on earth. The kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen. So you have Christ ruling over all and over the hearts of his people as the messianic Davidic king, and then you have him coming to reign and rule right here on earth. And that, my friends, is the total fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy here. Sixth point, this Messiah will rule with justice and righteousness forever. We see this in verse 7c. To establish it and to, Isaiah says, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah tells us the Messiah will establish the Davidic messianic kingdom through justice and righteousness from this time forth, or I think what he's referring to is his birth, because that's where how he starts this prophecy, from the time of his birth to forevermore, which means no end, forever and ever and ever. And we can see how Christ accomplished this. We can see how Jesus fulfilled this messianic prophecy because he is the Messiah. He satisfied, and he alone satisfied the justice of God through his sin-atoning death on the cross, 1 John 4.10. So we see him tied to the justice of God and fulfilling the justice of God through his sacrificial death. And he met the righteous demands of God through his active and passive obedience, Matthew 5.17, Luke 22.42. Now through the Completion of these and every other divine prerequisite, all the things that Jesus had to, to do through his life and ministry, all these accomplishments that he came and did all these things that were required, he became qualified to not only assume the Davidic kingdom, but to bring prophetic completion as the messianic kingdom and to be its king and sovereign forever and ever. So, this idea of rule with justice and righteousness, it is satisfied and fulfilled in Christ. He met the demands of justice. He met the demands of righteousness. He is the embodiment of these things. He characterizes or has fulfilled them. Therefore, the kingdom that he rules over, they are characterized in the kingdom where he is. And the great news is he qualifies his subjects, right, his kingdom people, his subjects, through his own accomplishments. He applies the justice he satisfied to them, and he imputes the righteousness he earned to them. In other words, this messianic king that Isaiah talked about coming, and we know he's come in Jesus, he is Jesus. King Jesus, he gives his subjects everything they need to become his people, to enter his kingdom, and to live for him. 
He gives the Holy Spirit regeneration, repentance, faith, power, scripture, the church. And from the moment his subjects are born again and enter into his kingdom, because nobody can enter into this invisible, the kingdom invisibly, nobody enters into it without being righteous and without being born again. John 3, 3, once they're born again and they enter his kingdom, their lives, his subjects' lives will be characterized by justice, by righteousness, and other fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. So we see the satisfaction or fulfillment of his rule bringing justice and righteousness, in particular to his subjects. What a wonderful reality that Isaiah talks about, prophecy and reality. And then lastly, number seven, God will zealously accomplish all these things, verse 7d. He says it like this, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Mm. The final piece of Isaiah's messianic prophecy right here about Jesus points to God the Father's role in this prophetic plan. Mm. Isaiah identifies the Father, God the Father, as the Lord of hosts, which means ruler over the angels and ruler over the heavenly hosts. That's the stars, the planets, the cosmos, all things. That's what Lord of hosts means, ruler over angels and all the stars and everything else. And he says here, the Lord of hosts, that's God, will zealously send his son into the world to accomplish everything that is written here. The Lord of hosts is therefore the architect of this plan of redemption, the redemption of sinners, the redemption of all creation. He is the architect and he is the zealous sender, the one who sends Christ with zeal. That means determination. And with a heart filled with love. And what he really means here when he says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, what he really means is that it's a sure thing. Therefore, Isaiah's Jewish audience who was suffering such great tribulation, they could literally bank on this prophecy because Isaiah says he will surely do it. And they had a pretty decent understanding of the sovereignty of God then. Not every Jew, but most of them did. They knew when, when Isaiah wrote this, it was a sure thing because they knew that nothing could thwart the zeal and plans of the Lord of hosts. Nothing can stop God from doing whatever he says he's going to do. Isaiah 14, 27, Job 42, verse 2. In other words, God always does what he says he's going to do. Numbers 23, 29. If God declared it, he will fulfill it. The ancient Jewish mind understood this, and that's why when they read this whole prophecy and got to that last part, the Lord of hosts is going to surely do it. Man, I'm telling you, it didn't really matter what they were going through. They could have maybe lost their home or lost something dear to them or just been, been threatened by foreign nations that were constantly smashing Israel and this brought them hope and joy in the midst of all that tribulation. You see the Jews, just wrapping up, the Jews were hoping for Isaiah's messianic prophecies to come true. They were hoping for this. In fact, many still are. But we don't have to hope for them to come true because God has already fulfilled them with the exception of one last component, that's the return of Christ and then the establishment of that kingdom on earth in its fullest sense. That's the only part we're waiting for. We joyfully anticipate that. But 
all the other part, that the Jewish people were waiting for that. It's already happened. We don't have to hope for it to happen. Roughly 2,000 years ago, God sent his son into the world to be born of a virgin, to destroy the reign of Satan, to be the fullest divine revelation as our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace, to establish his Davidic messianic kingdom with its everlasting peace, throne, justice, and righteousness. That's what Isaiah prophesied, and Jesus fulfilled all of it. We celebrate Christmas Day because it commemorates the day on which the Lord of hosts zealously sent his son into the world to fulfill Isaiah's messianic prophecies, all that is written here. Unlike the ancient Jews, our hope is not in Christmas. It is because of Christmas. You see the difference? So when we leave this place in a few moments, we should carry the true meaning of Christmas with us. It's not about Kris Kringle or Santa Claus. It's not about gifts or trees or lights or decorations or grandma's fruitcake. <laughs> it's about the child that was born. It's about the son that was given for us. God the Father, the Lord of hosts, zealously sent Jesus into the world to accomplish the messianic prophecies of Isaiah 9, 6 to 7, and all the messianic prophecies we see in Scripture. Why? So that we could become his kingdom people forever and ever and ever. Are you trusting in Christ today, dear friend? Have you repented of your unbelief and put your faith in him alone, trusting in his person and finished work, believing what Isaiah wrote, believing in the fulfillment of these things, believing in the person and work of this Messiah, this Christ Jesus? Are you? See, we always talk about giving gifts, and we give gifts to our children and everyone else, and this is the time of year where we stop to remember and recognize the gift of that the Father, the Lord of hosts, gave to the world, to us. And that is the child that was born, the son who was given for us. That, my friends, is the greatest gift ever given.